0: Well, if you have your Bible with you, I want to invite you to turn again to the book of Hebrews. For those who are visiting, we're glad to have you. We have been studying for several months the book of Hebrews, and we come to chapter 6. We're going to read verses 4 through 6. These may be some of the more important, but yet also controversial verses Contained in the book of Hebrews. I think there's been a lot of misunderstanding about what these verses say and what they don't say. So we're going to draw down here on three verses this morning, and I hope uh, it'll be a great blessing for all of us. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 6. Hebrews 6, 4 through 6, <clears throat> and we want to deal with the question, uh, do partakers of the Holy Spirit fall away? And if so, what? in what way, and what way are they partakers, and what way do they fall? Let's pray together. We need help today, so let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for these verses, and now pray that the Spirit who is spoken of in these verses, would be with us, helping and aiding us in understanding the truth that is contained here. We ask, Lord, that you would sanctify us by the truth. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hebrews chapter 6. I'm going to begin reading here at verse 4. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucified to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. Amen. Now, we've been learning here that the author of Hebrews is admonishing this particular group of Hebraic Christians. And he's been admonishing them because they have not been walking as well and as faithfully as they could or should have been doing so. We learned last chapter that they should have been teachers by now. They should have made sufficient progress in the things of the Lord and in the Bible that they should have been more knowledgeable than they presently were. They should have had an ability to communicate the truth of Scripture to other people by now. You know, that's one of the things that we are trying uh, to do here at Covenant is we are trying to feed you, equip you, train you, teach you, so that you can be of greater usefulness in the place where God has put you providentially, as he puts you in the sphere of this community and others in the region, um, that you are ready to give an answer for the hope that is within you, because you have been trained and taught here. Well, um, this particular group of Hebraic Christians were not making the progress they should have been making. They were sluggish in their growth. They were kind of slothful, and they needed to be admonished here, Um, and they needed a little, you know, kick in the pants uh, to get with it. They were not progressing as they should have been, and the fault was with them. Now, as the author is admonishing them, one of the things that he is also doing here is he's warning them that if they continue in this slothfulness, that they might be in danger of leaving the faith altogether. Now, this, of course, raises all kinds of theological questions, doesn't it? Because the first thing that we wonder is then, well, if the author of Hebrews is warning Christians about falling away That raises the question in our minds, can a true Christian leave the faith? Um, Why does he not say, hey, once saved, always saved? Why does he tell these people, don't worry about it? Well, what we want to do here is look at this in several parts. First of all, I want us to consider um, what it means in verse 4 to be enlightened. And then secondly, I want us to see what it means to have tasted of the heavenly gift and of the Holy Spirit. And then thirdly, what this falling away is, and I want us to give applications. So three thoughts here. Um, we could have I'm going to combine a few of them. John Owen says that there are five evangelical privileges listed here in these verses. I'm going to combine some of them uh, because I think some of them are reiterative. Um, The first one being, what does it mean to be enlightened in verse 4? Secondly, what does it mean for them to have tasted of the heavenly blessings of God? And then thirdly, what is this falling away that is being uh, warned of? So look at verse 4. Let's look at what it means here to be enlightened. Again, the author of Hebrews says, For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit. So this first word here, enlightened, what does this mean? Well, it means here that they have been given some knowledge of the truth. Some have even equated it to a type of baptism, baptism. Uh, that those who were baptized were said to have been enlightened. But this is a benefit here that while a real blessing of God nevertheless falls short of an enlightenment that leads to saving faith. Uh, There is, to quote Owen, a knowledge of spiritual things. Owen says uh, that there is an ability to study the things of God and yet not believe or have saving faith in the things that are being studied. Let me give you an illustration. Boys and girls, I um, went to a Presbyterian college. Now, it was not a a faithful uh, Presbyterian college. It was not a Bible-believing Presbyterian college. When I attended, you had to go... There, many many decades previous, uh, but nevertheless, um, there was still a remnant of you know blessing that came with going to a Presbyterian school. Namely, the school made you read the Bible. Still, you had to take so many classes uh, that that taught religion, and you had to uh, take courses in Western history and. Um, and so I would hear lectures, for example, the first time I ever heard the five points of Calvinism was at this liberal Presbyterian school. The first time I ever heard a justification by faith alone and Martin Luther and what all this meant was in a lecture uh, in my humanities class. And the professor could do a very thorough job of explaining how Martin Luther understood justification by faith alone. He could accurate, excuse me, accurately convey what Martin Luther believed about the doctrine of justification. okay? But that didn't necessarily translate that my professors believed it themselves. In fact, the very professor who taught me the doctrine of justification as represented by Martin Luther, also told my roommate and myself, that we should not believe that Jesus was fully God. He said that to us in a private conversation. So it it is possible to study the things of God and to know about them and even maybe even know about them accurately, but still not believe them and still, still not adhere to them as truth. In fact, many times the study of these things apart from faith actually causes them to hate the things of the gospel here. So what the author of Hebrews is saying here is, he says, For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have made, been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of the God, etc., and then have fallen away, it's impossible to renew them again to repentance. That is, there are some who have some enlightenment, education, education, can bring some enlightenment. Um, But unless it is owned by the Spirit savingly unto true conversion, true repentance, and true genuine faith, fiducia, that is trust in Jesus Christ, that it is not an enlightenment that saves. And so it is possible to get a Ph.D. in theology, in church history, or something like that, and still be a stranger to Jesus Christ. Jesus has warned us in the Sermon on the Mount that there will be many who say to me, Lord, Lord, did I not do X, Y, and Z? Did I not do these things in your name? And Jesus' response will be, he tells us, depart from me, I never knew you. I did not know you. Why does Jesus say, I did not know you? Because they did not know him. They knew about him. They knew of him. They did not know him. If they had truly known him, they would truly have loved him. And if they had loved him, they would have borne the fruit of him. They would have communed with him. They would have done what he says to do in the Bible, albeit imperfectly. But they purposefully would have oriented the vector of their life towards him. He would have been their Alpha and their Omega. They, they would have seen to it that the foundation of their home was built on the person and the work of Jesus Christ. They would build their family life on Jesus Christ. They would build their marriage on Jesus Christ. They would build their educational, their intellectual life on Jesus Christ. They would build their moral life on Jesus Christ, the things that they would permit, the things that they would forbid in themselves and in their families would all be on the person of Jesus Christ. But Jesus says that they need to leave his presence because what? They are workers of iniquity, he calls them. Because in the end, they do not bear the fruit of him. They do not obey him in his moral law, in his moral will. They forsake him. They go about doing the things That are dishonoring to him and therefore though they know of him, they are not acknowledged nor acquitted by God in the day of judgment. You do not go to my right hand. You go to my left. Because I did not know you. This is why we must always strive to know Christ and believe on him, not just know about him, not just know the facts about him, teenagers. Not just know the the right answer in the catechism. Now this is very important and God uses these means to know him and to grow him. But, But we must have faith in him. We must believe on him. We must trust him. We must obey him. We have to know and have a knowledge of him. We have to assent to who he is. But There has to be that trust in him as savior so the spirit can bring about some enlightenment there are there are people who know plenty about the bible and about the gospel yet they do not really believe because if they really believe they would conform their life to it uh, but they don't i was listening to a famous businessman and uh, watching a video of him. And, you know, um, he obviously had enough of a Christian background that he could actually quote a hymn. But if you know something of his personal life, you know that there is a great inconsistency uh, there. And, and, you know, we will leave it to God on that final day. But it raises great questions about this man's uh, sincerity, if he has any faith in the Lord at all. So what should we do by way of application? One of the things I think you and I ought always to do, and we probably do it, and sometimes even as a pastor, it can be kind of perfunctory at times, but we do need to pray for the Spirit and His ministry to us. And we need to remember that we are dealing with holy things here in the Bible uh, that these are things that are of great weight and great importance, and that we ne- need to tend to them with all seriousness, not a seriousness that is devoid of happiness and joy in the lord but but we do need to recognize here that we are dealing with weighty matters, these are not trivialities here, and that it is possible to sit under the outward call of the gospel ministry and yet refuse the inward ministry of the spirit to the point where we do not repent and believe. And so we, we ought to regularly pray for the ministry of the spirit on the Lord's day, that we, that we try to, when, when the pastor leads us in prayer before the Bible reading, that, that we try to earnestly enter into that prayer ourselves, Lord, help me to hear with ears that can hear. I remember one time that uh, one of my professors in seminary was telling us and warning us on this point, and he was telling us how we have to be careful how we sit under the word because the word can be a means of hardening. God can use the word as a judgment against the audience. If the audience is a is approaching the word with irreverence or they are continuing in a secret life of impenitence at home and yet they keep coming and sitting under that word and resisting the Holy Spirit, that God may use that preaching to actually harden them. And I say that because that man who taught me that truth left his wife later. And I think about that to this day. we need to be very careful. Now, I'm not saying that, therefore, again, I have to leave certain things to the Lord. But we do need to recognize uh, that there are some who seem to be enlightened to some extent, uh, but then do not persevere. You can imagine, certainly uh, on the day of, of Pentecost, and I'm kind of moving into my second point here, that, that they, they not only uh, have been enlightened, but notice here how the Scripture speaks here of tasting a couple times. Notice it's in verse 4, and you see it again in verse 5. It says in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit. And then he says again in verse 5, and have tasted the good word of God. They've tasted the heavenly gift. They've been made a partaker to some extent of the Holy Spirit. And then, then again, he says, tasted the good word. I think these are reiterations of really the same idea. That is, there is some experienced savor, S-A-V-O-R, savor of much like a little taste without a full eating and digesting. So, young children. Occasionally, right, mom puts something on the plate and you look at it and you say, I don't recognize what this is and what do you ask? What is this, mom? Now, what does she say? She tells you what? Well, taste it. She'll tell you what it is, but then she says, I want you to taste it. You have to at least taste it. You cannot refuse it simply by looking at it and saying it doesn't look pleasant. I was just watching a video and they were giving English school kids uh, Southern gravy and biscuits. And at first, these English school kids are looking at it in horror. <laughs> because to us, this white lumpy gravy on, on biscuits does not look appealing to them. They've never seen this before. And they're like, what is this? This looks kind of awful. And so they said, well, try it. Taste it. And so they taste it, and then, boom, the lights came on. They were like, oh, wow. And then one kid goes, Americans are lucky. <laughs> But here the idea is that that they are tasting, savoring something in, in a very small portion of the blessing of God. The heavenly gift, it's called one time. The Holy Spirit is mentioned a second time. The word of God is mentioned a third time. And then the powers, fourthly, the powers of the age to come. I think all of these expressions really are speaking really of the same thing. The heavenly gift, the Holy Spirit, the word of God and the powers of the age to come are speaking here of the blessing that comes by the Spirit's ministry under the preaching of the gospel. And that there are those who taste of these blessings and may be moved in ways that give an appearance under conversion but actually fall short of a true and saving union with Jesus Christ. So, for example, go to Acts chapter 2 in your mind. There they are in Jerusalem. Jesus has told them, stay in the upper room and wait until what? The ministry of the Holy Spirit is poured out upon you. And so they wait, and the Spirit of God, according to the promise of Joel... As Joel prophesied that the Spirit would be given to the church, the Holy Spirit is poured out upon them and they begin to preach the gospel in the variety of languages that can be understood by the people of God who have come from the diaspora to Jerusalem to worship the true and living God. And each man is hearing the gospel preached in their own native tongue. And there are thousands that are baptized. Now, it is Possible, if not probable, that there may have been some out there in the audience who felt the power of the Spirit's ministry as Peter was preaching. That that they felt a sense of enlightenment as to the truth of what was being said. Their affections seemed to go out toward the message that was being proclaimed, they may, with the influence of others, have been caught up in the moment of it and were baptized into the church upon this profession of belief in Christ as Savior. And yet may, over time, show themselves to have never really truly been regenerated In their soul. Now, why do I say that? Well, because the Bible teaches that if one truly is wrought upon savingly by the Spirit, that the soul is renewed and is raised up. The soul, by nature, Ephesians chapter 2, is dead in sins and trespasses. That is the condition of man. There's none who seeks after God by nature. But the Spirit of God does, in His grace, raise up the soul so that they are born not of men again. Jesus to Nicodemus, must I re-enter my mother's womb? No, you must be born from above. You must be born again. You must be born of the Spirit's power. You must be raised up with Christ. Your soul must be renewed, resurrected. Lifted up, raised up with Christ so that you are seated with Christ. You must have your soul wrought upon in such a saving manner that you will never be able to fall away. So that Paul can say in Philippians that he who began a good work in you, that is, he who truly has renewed you in your inner man, he who has regenerated you in your spirit, he will see to it that you continue in the things of Christ. Now, your faith may have fits and starts. Okay? Your faith may wobble at times. Uh, we see this, don't we? I mean, how many times does Peter stick his foot in his mouth? That Peter who could say that you are the Christ by the influence of the Holy Spirit is the same Peter who at the end of Jesus' ministry denies him three times under the pressure now, the thing is that at the, it, it, Sinclair Ferguson has said that the, 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 if you were there on that night of Jesus' arrest and you witnessed what you witnessed, both with Judas and with Peter, it would have been very difficult, you, difficult for you on that night to say authoritatively that Judas is the apostate and Peter is the backslidden Christian it would have been on that night almost really impossible for you to tell who has betrayed Christ to the loss of their soul and who will be restored to the apostleship. Now, I don't say that to cause those of you who have anxiety about your soul to make your condition worse. Uh I say that, though, that we should take this pastoral warning seriously. That we should be careful whenever we feel even small inclinations to move away from the Savior. When we feel a sense of worldliness building up in our spirit. or We feel a disaffection in our soul or the root of bitterness getting in in us or whatever the malady might be that we deal with it sooner than later because it may be but backsliding for some but it could be apostasy and as much as we would like to think we know ourselves fairly well we don't always really know god knows things about us that we are not aware of within ourselves therefore these pastoral warnings to the Hebraic Christian church need to be applied to our own selves. How can I read these verses in a way that I profit from the admonition to be careful of moving away from Christ while at the same time not being shaken of my assurance in Christ? And I think the answer to one is the same for the other that we seek to mortify sin in our life and we go to Christ regularly with all our prayers and concerns. And that by doing so, we are affirmed in our union with Jesus Christ. That is, we use the means of grace to grow in grace with Christ. And that the means of grace have a dual effect of mortifying sin, keeping us from temptation, but also reaffirming in our inner man the truth that God is my Father, and that my soul cries out, Abba, Father, all the more. There are what Owen calls common operations of the Holy Spirit, Um. And so we always have to be careful, uh, both in discerning our own situation, but also that of others. So, for example, let me give you a few illustrations. You could look at King Saul and then Saul's successor, David. Uh, King Saul seemed to start off pretty well, didn't he? And we even see that sometimes the Lord used Saul. The, the Lord came mightily upon Saul and Saul even at one point prophesied and, and prostrated himself while prophesying. So the the, the mystery here is that the, the Lord did seem to, by his spirit, use Saul in his kingship and even used him. Saul made some good decisions, especially early on. Saul seemed to be uttering things uh, under the control of the Holy Spirit. And yet, Saul, at the end of his life, is consulting a medium because God had rejected him and would no longer give him revelation. Now, here again, I think you have to be careful with Saul, leave it to the day of judgment as to Saul's ultimate standing, but that should be a warning to us. Yet we have also David, who was a man after God's own heart, and yet he, what, he falls into the most grievous of sins so that uh, people are blaspheming the name of God because of David's ungodly conduct. And yet we know that David is restored. Nathan comes and says, you shall not die. You could think about the ministry of the disciples, that that Judas, just as it was Difficult to distinguish Peter and Judas on the night of the Lord's betrayal. Positively, you also have to admit that, let's say you were a villager in in Galilee. And you remember how Jesus sent out the disciples in pairs to go and what? Proclaim the kingdom and to perform miracles. So you know that one of those pairs was Judas and another Disciple, And that Judas, though it isn't explicit in the Bible, but surely Judas laid hands on people, prayed for people, and people really were genuinely healed, miraculously healed through the ministry of Judas. That is, the Spirit had a common operation through Judas, but yet we know that Judas in the end, was not a true believer. We see this also, the Apostle Paul writing to the church at Colossae. And at the end of his letter, what does he say? I'm here with two of my co-workers, Luke and Demas. And we know, well, we believe that Luke was martyred later. Uh, It's not in the Bible, but church history tells us that We believe that Luke was martyred for the faith. And yet, Demas, we are told in the Scriptures, does not persevere. There was this falling away here. And so, we are dealing with things that are very mysterious here. That for a a time, people can have a semblance of faith, may even have giftedness by the Spirit whereby the Spirit uses them in the lives of other people for good and for saving faith in them? And yet, in the end, prove that they were not really genuine believers themselves in Jesus Christ. This is why, you know, congregation, I can't rest on the fact, I dare not trust and go before God that I should be in heaven because I'm a minister of the gospel. Now, that that profits me nothing in the sight of God. My trust has to be the very same foundation that you have. That is faith in Jesus Christ. Christ has to be the reason I'm in heaven. Now, look again at our text here. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit... You can understand here why some believers think that you can lose your salvation. The language can seem kind of strong to be partakers of the Holy Spirit. But I hope I've demonstrated to you in ways in which you could be a partaker of the Holy Spirit short of saving faith. That could you say that Judas was a partaker of the Holy Spirit? Could you say that King Saul was a partaker of the Holy Spirit? Could you say that Demas was a partaker of the Holy Spirit? And I think the scripture would say, yes, in each of these cases, they in some measure were partakers of the Spirit. But were they truly born again? No. Were they really born again necessarily? Well, you know, we don't know for sure, but likely no. In some cases, certainly in Judas's case, we'll leave it to God about Saul and Demas. Now, um, so we do have, there are denominations that are present today that that do believe uh, that it's possible to be a a Christian and lose your salvation. I want to argue the opposite here. I am arguing that while the Holy Spirit may give some common operations to a person whereby they have the appearance for a while, of being a true believer. Jesus said, you shall know them by their fruit. And there is, I think, where the test has to really lie. Are we bearing the fruit of the Spirit? Not just the gifts of the Spirit, but the, the evangelical fruit of the Spirit. Remember, Jesus says that this is how we shall discern between true believers And faults, or those who are sheep and those who are wolves in sheep's clothing. Do they bear the fruit of the Spirit? For those who are born again must necessarily, in some measure, bear the fruit of that Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, etc., must be evident in their life. That's why Paul makes such a point in the letter to the Corinthians that they not trust in their giftedness per se, that is, that it is not the speaking in tongues, which is of greatest importance. It is what? It is love. That that we love one another. This commandment I give to you, that you love one another. That is the the fruit of the Spirit. And we see that it is of, of greater importance than even the gifts of the spirit given out to the church. <clears throat> the power, what is this powers of the age to come? You know, they are partakers of the spirit, the word of God that is uh, I didn't say much about that, but you can be moved by the power, the majesty, the subject, the nature of the subject of the Bible but yet fall short of faith in the gospel. The powers of the age to come, I believe that this is the spirit Of the uh, who remember the Holy Spirit's ministry is what he is bringing the world of glory into this world that is, the age of complete sanctification and glorification is brought into this present evil age embryonically. And so, when Paul speaks of the powers of the age to come, he is talking about how the ministry, some do experience the something of the power and the glory of that world that awaits us in the new heavens and the new earth, and yet still fall away. Now, I want to deal with this falling away real quickly and and close with some application. What are we dealing with here? One of the difficulties of verse 6, and I think verse 6 is a very hard verse. I've wrestled with this verse even as I was preparing for this week. Because one of the things that, you know, even sometimes as I read my Bible, boys and girls, I make notes in it, in the margins. And next to verse 6, what I wrote many years ago was, how do we square verse 6 with Luke 15? Now you say, what's Luke 15? Luke 15 is the story about the prodigal son. Because this is not a mere academic lesson for us, is it? For many of us. Because all of us have friends and family members who we worry about. And we're trying to figure out, as best as we can discern, have they fallen away temporarily to be brought back? Or have they, have they sinned in such a way as they will never be able to be a Christian? Um, that is, are, are, are we looking at a situation where we're dealing with somebody who has gone into a far country, who we hope and pray that God will awaken them while they're feeding the pigs to say to themselves that it is better back in the Father's house and they come back into the church? Or are we looking at somebody who has gone so far in their denial of the gospel of Christ that they have sinned against the Spirit and cannot come back? and 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 you 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 realize that there is a need for what I'll call healthy agnosticism now by that i don't mean that you become agnostic as to the existence of god what i mean is agnosticism boys and girls means we we don't know that is there is such a thing i think as a healthy agnosticism about the condition of others, and that in humility before God, we be careful not to render a judgment. Um, We need, I think, this is an argument that all the more to be careful and not careless ourselves, but it also means that we must be careful not to judge others, whether they're Peter or whether they're Judas. Judas because we don't often know in the moment. Um, So let me say this. I think the application has to come back chiefly. Not so much, I don't think this verse was written so that we could wrestle with regard to the state of somebody else. This was written so that we would examine ourselves. So that we would say, you know, that is true. I really don't want to be Peter or Judas on the night in which Jesus was betrayed, to tell you the truth. And I would uh, like to avoid both. Well, how do I do that? Well, I think the answer here is that we do what the author of Hebrews is saying to do we watch ourselves closely, be careful, ask yourself, Good questions. Am I loving Christ? Am I growing too worldly? Um, am I not? Am I? Am I not uh, profiting as I should from public worship? How's my prayer life? How's my prayer life really? Am I just kind of running through it, just to ease the conscience, you know, throbbing at me? Or you know, am I really trying to pray? Do I need to do better in, in prayer? Um, have I gotten busy about many things, and I'm neglecting the things that are most important in this life? Have I failed to seek first the kingdom and His righteousness, and trust that God will add all these other things unto me? I think we need to watch ourselves. How's my attitude? How's my attitude towards others? how How am I doing with regard um, in my relationships, in my family? Am I loving my wife? You know, or am I, are my prayers being hindered because I'm not loving my wife? Uh, am I, you know, raising my children in, in such a way as they're, they're, they're becoming bitter against me? You know, because um, dad can never be pleased. And, and uh, I'm exasperating them uh, rather than encouraging them. So, there's a lot here I think that we need to think about. And again, um, you know, this is a pastoral admonition. It's a, it's, a, it's a warning, but the warning is to drive you closer to Christ. It's not supposed to drive you to introspection. I want you to examine yourself because the Bible says to do that, but I don't want you to end with self examination. Self examination is is always to lead you then away from yourself to Christ. And that's what we're about to do here. Why it's so important is because when we take the Lord's Supper, what we're doing is we do, in a sense, look at ourselves and our shortcomings, but then we're always brought back to what is central, and that is what Jesus has done for us. Let's pray together.